The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Sheldon Krimsky. He is a professor of urban and environmental policy and planning at Tufts University, where his research has focused on the linkages between science, technology, ethics, values, and public policy. He's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Public Health and Family Medicine at the Tufts School of Medicine, and he has written extensively on conflict of interest in scientific research. Dr. Krimsky served on the National Institutes of Health's Recombinant DNA Advisory Committee. He was a consultant to the Presidential Commission for the Study of Ethical Problems in Medicine and Biomedical and Behavioral Research and to the Office of Technology Assessment. He is a board member of the Council for Responsible Genetics, and we'll be speaking today about the book he edited with Jeremy Gruber, The GMO Deception, What You Need to Know About the Food, Corporations, and Government Agencies Putting Our Families and Our Environment at Risk. Welcome, Dr. Krimsky. Well, thank you very much. Well, this is a terrific volume of essays and papers by individuals who understand different angles of GMO or genetic engineering of our food system. I'm curious to know, how did you become interested in this topic? Well, I became interested in genetic engineering beginning in about 1976. At that time, while I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and teaching at Tufts University, there was a very unusual debate that was taking place in the city of Cambridge. The city council had asked for a moratorium at Harvard and MIT for doing any genetic engineering research. There were some professors who said that they thought that the research might be too dangerous and they wanted a better sense of the risk assessment. Harvard and MIT were disturbed because They were redoing their laboratories for government research. I was asked to sit on a panel of citizens to review this new research on genetic engineering. And the committee met for about five months and wrote the first legislation in the United States uh, in the city of Cambridge that regulated this new research. And at that time, I began to realize that we're looking at the future, and we're looking at something that's going to have quite remarkable impacts as time proceeds. So that's when I started getting interested in it, and and I realized that a lot of claims were being made even then that don't hold up today about assessing the risks. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got a great series of questions in this volume to help us rethink some of the deceptive statements that have been fed to citizens as well as those of us working in the health professions. And I want to talk a little bit about those deceptive statements. We're told on so many levels 
that genetically engineered foods, genetically engineered crops have been extensively studied and proven safe. And yet what I realize is that there is a community of scientists who say not so fast. We really don't have enough evidence to prove safety. And when I look at who's conducting the studies, the bulk of the studies that the EPA and FDA and USDA rely on come from the industry that profits from the genetic engineering. Well, that's certainly true. It doesn't necessarily make the studies wrong, but it does raise questions about the bias. So one of the questions I had in researching the book and a, an article that was published um, a year after the book was I wanted to know whether there were independent studies done and whether they evaluated the um, GMO foods. So I came up in my investigations with 26 peer-reviewed studies which showed that there were adverse effects in animal feeding experiments. I published that paper in a peer-reviewed journal. And then, you know, there was debates and discussions. And then the National Academy of Sciences put out a very important report just recently in April 2016. They had put out a number of reports on GMOs, but this was the most recent and probably the most honest and reflective report. And in the report, they basically said there really aren't any good studies that have been done which follow very high standards for such studies for evaluating the risks of GMOs. So I sat there in great amazement because here were these 26 studies that were peer-reviewed and they were published in journals, some of them very prominent journals. And here's the National Academy of Sciences panel of 20 people saying that these studies that have been done really have not met what we consider to be high standards. So I'm thinking, but what about all the studies that Monsanto funded? They also have not met the high standards. And then they admitted that there is no agency anywhere in the world which embodies these standards. Not the European Commission, not certainly not anyone in the United States. So here we have the National Academy saying, we have not seen studies that meet our standards for evaluating this new science, this new product. And then they end their study by saying, there is no evidence that there's any dangers. So it's a bit paradoxical. Mm -hmm. There's not rigorous studies that they would agree to, and there's no evidence of any dangers. How can there be evidence if they haven't done the studies that met their criteria? So it gets to be a bit confusing, but they did have a lot of questions raised, and they did suggest that the government put money into doing the proper kinds of studies. Now, our federal government does not put money into studies because in 1992, they reached the conclusion that we don't have to study GMOs, that they are going to be safe 
by virtue of the fact that they don't differ from other kinds of plant breeding methods. Mm-hmm. I call GMOs, for the sake of simplicity, molecular breeding, and then there's traditional breeding. So molecular breeding is when the breeding is done by manipulating individual genes and inserting them into plants. And traditional breeding that consists of all the other methods that have been used for hundreds of years, maybe longer than that, uh, that is interbreeding of crops and using uh, radiation to create variations in uh, crops. So molecular breeding and then there's traditional breeding. And um, so that's where we are. We don't really have an agency that evaluates the health effects of GMOs because they've concluded that they are essentially safe. The Europeans, on the other hand, do require testing. So most of the testing experiments that are being done are being done in Europe. And um, when I put together the volume on the GMOs, you know, the GMO deception, I was trying to present the critical perspectives. I wasn't trying to present both sides because I knew that the pro-GMO side was well represented in the scientific literature and in the agency literature and in the industry literature. So I wanted people to read what credible spokespersons were saying who had a different point of view. Mm-hmm. So that was the, um, the reason behind developing that book. And when I wrote a paper for a journal called Science, Technology, and Human Values, it's a um, social science journal about science, I recognized that I was a skeptic. It's not that I was against GMOs. I'm not. I have no principal objections to genetically modifying uh, products or foods. But I look at the situation as what are the risks and what are the benefits. And I realized that there were three areas which fed my skepticism. The first area was that I had identified these 26 studies, which are listed in my own study, and I wondered why nobody was paying any attention to them. And they were only paying attention to the positive studies. And then I decided to do what we typically do in science when if you don't have 30 years of expertise in a particular field and you want to learn, you want to get the best information about a particular field, you read the systematic reviews in the scientific literature. These are people who are asked to do reviews for journals who have spent 20 or 30 years researching some area. So you have to assume these people know a lot about the area they're doing a review on. So I found the systematic reviews for a period of time between, I don't know, 2008 and 2016 or something like that, I forget, some period of years, and I found that half of them said there were problems and half of, half of them said there were no problems. So that felt like there was no consensus. Mm-hmm. And the, these were the systematic reviews. So that was the second area of skepticism. And another area of skepticism was that 
we did not have a law and regulations for evaluating the GMOs. And I felt that was unusual, and that piqued my skepticism because it sounded like that may have been the result of heavy lobbying. If we put a foreign chemical into a food, we have to demonstrate that the food is safe after that chemical has been introduced. Why if we put a foreign gene into the food, a gene that would never have been introduced by traditional breeding, why don't we have to demonstrate that it's safe? There must be something going on with that. And finally, I did a systematic look at two scientists who had found adverse effects, one of them in 1999 and one of them in 2012. And I began to study how those scientists were treated by the scientific community. And I was convinced that more than science was going on. In one case, the person was fired from his job after many, many years of serving on a research community in Scotland. In another case, after a year of having the article published in a well-respected journal, the research study, which showed adverse effects of feeding maize, GMOs, to animals, the paper was retracted, and the reason given for the retraction was very, very unusual. I've never heard of anything like it. It said, we're retracting this paper not because there were mistakes, not because there was scientific misconduct, but because the results were not definitive. <laughs> and I've never heard of a retraction based upon those criteria. Right. So that sort of fueled my skepticism. It made me feel like there's more politics in this than I would like to think could be possible in science. Yeah. Dr. Krinsky, let me take one moment to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Sheldon Krimsky, Professor of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning at Tufts University and the editor of The GMO Deception, What You Need to Know About the Food, Corporations, and Government Agencies Putting Our Families and Our Environment at Risk. You were, of course, talking about Dr. Eric Seralini and Dr. Arpad Pusjai and how they were treated when their research found adverse effects in animal studies following the consumption of genetically engineered food. There's also a situation that happens to farmers who have their crops genetically contaminated through drift as well as contaminated through herbicide drift that the herbicides that go with the genetically engineered crops. And what is amazing to me, just as you are amazed at how this scientific research was reported and why in one case it was rejected, for the life of me, I can't understand how if a farmer's crop is contaminated, why there is no compensation to the farmer by the person or the 
the industry that is the cause of the contamination. Yeah, and Europe has different laws than the United States. Um, the U.S. has no laws protecting organic farmers. If their crops were contaminated, their crops would no longer be classified as organic. To understand the logic of this, I could try to give you an example. If somebody found that your computer was hacked, but in this case, the hacker posted on your computer songs that you didn't pay for, and somebody got your computer, they would say that you had intellectual property that you have not paid for, Mm -hmm. even though it wasn't your fault. Right. So it appears to be the case, at least in the few legal cases, especially the one in Canada, where the courts don't seem to care how the intellectual property, which is these GMOs, got into your farm. You have them, and you're responsible to make sure that they don't appear and you don't profit from them. I'm not exactly sure how many cases like this there have been, but uh, the few cases that have occurred have not been very promising for American farmers. I think the European situation in the European Union, there are distances that are required between the growing of GMOs and farms that don't grow GMOs so that they would not be contaminated. So they would establish what would be the distance that pollen would not be able to to traverse to contaminate another farm. So they're more they're much more appreciative of this problem. But uh we we really don't pay much attention to it in in the States. Right. And it's also it becomes very expensive for the farmer to fight these kinds of contamination problems. And it also creates a dynamic in small rural communities where one farmer is pitted against another. So there's a whole psychological um, component at play that we really haven't had a good conversation about. Yeah, that's, that's, that's certainly true and can be very intimidating, just as I'm aware of people who have attempted to write books or even scholarly articles that might have or would have had some criticism of a GMO product. There were threats of lawsuits, and small publishers cannot afford those lawsuits. So some have just pulled away from the project. And that's the case also with some scientific publishers. So, you know, a large corporation can uh, threaten a lawsuit and and that can uh, change the decision-making of a publisher. Mm -hmm. So there's a a silencing that's happening that seems so anti-American. Well, there certainly has been. I don't think it's unique to GMOs. Right. 
I think it, you know, corporations exercise their power to achieve their goal, and if somebody gets in the way and they can use the lawsuit, they will. I remember in 1999, I was invited to a meeting with the CEO of Monsanto and some of his staff people, and there were about half a dozen public interest folks. And I remember asking the CEO basically two questions in 1999, and this was in uh, Public Citizen, and it was the moderator was Ralph Nader. And one question I said was, why do you sue so many people, scholars? And the other question is, why don't you label your products? Or why are you opposed to labeling? So those are the two questions. And it's 17 years later, and the same behavior seems to be taking place. And what were the answers you got to your question? <laughs> yes. Well, at that time, the CEO was Robert Shapiro. Uh-huh. Uh, I think he uh, also was a Harvard Law School graduate. And when I mentioned this lawsuit, he says, well, we have to protect our interests. And when somebody says something we think is false about our products, we will sue them. And on the labeling question, in 1999, he said, we're thinking about it. Hmm. Well, they obviously thought about it Yeah. And decided they didn't want the labeling. Right. Or at least not the kind of labeling that most people would think is a label. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really unfortunate. And people need to understand, I think, what's really going on in the agricultural communities with regard to the contamination of our soil and water with the herbicides that are largely, you know, these genetically engineered crops are largely engineered to withstand the spraying of herbicides. And then with weed resistance, we get more traits that allow more spraying. And I think that too often when we're having this quote-unquote debate, and I don't even like to frame this conversation as a debate because it implies that there are two sides that have equal merit, but when we're talking about GMOs, we're typically confronted with, well, GMOs, yes or no. And I think that it's most important for people to really look at each application of the genetic engineering and then to ask questions as you have so brilliantly outlined in the beginning of this book, such as, do GMOs create greater control by seed manufacturers over farmers? Right. Well, if you if you read any of the contracts that are asked of farmers to sign, I think there's no question about that. These contracts place a great deal of control over the farmers, and it's almost like the farmers don't buy the seed; they rent the seed. Exactly. Imagine, you know, you you buy some seeds and. You're not allowed to save, save them for the next year. You have to use them all in one year. All kinds of constraints. Right. You can't give them to an independent research institute to evaluate them. You're not allowed to give them to some scientists who would want to do some greenhouse studies. So 
it's almost like you know you're you're renting i don't know intellectual property you're you're renting a cd or something like that mm-hmm. it's not like you own the seed right so it is a different kind of farming it's a different kind of agriculture yeah well and i also think that your book really helps expose many of the issues that we should be talking about. I mean, even this idea that the question that do GMOs reinforce and expand monocultures and destroy biodiversity, I think, I don't know how much we're aware of how important biodiversity is in resilience, especially during these climate change challenges. So I think that having a set of questions as you present, as well as different pieces or different articles from individuals who truly understand the topics from different perspectives or contexts is very mm-hmm. important. Yeah. Now, not all GMOs are the same. Right. And when you're not putting in foreign proteins that have never seen the light of day in in a in a food product, that's one level. If you were creating an immunity in a product that might be very different and in which you don't see a a foreign uh, protein coming in and uh, creating changes in the product. So I think you have to evaluate each form quite distinctly. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have any methods at all of or any system in place to evaluate it transparently, and those evaluations should be done not by the manufacturers. There's a fundamental principle in a book that I wrote in 2003 called Science and the Private Interest. And it's a principle, I think, that most sensible people would adopt. And that is that the manufacturer of a product should not be the person to evaluate the product. In other words, if Boeing makes a wonderful plane, and Boeing should evaluate its new plane, but it shouldn't be the only company or the only institution to evaluate its plane. You have to have independent evaluators. You don't want to have only the manufacturer of the product do the evaluation. And that's a fundamental principle. We don't have... We shouldn't have pharmaceutical companies evaluating their drugs as the sole evaluator. We shouldn't have automobile companies be the ones to evaluate the safety of the automobile. There should be independent evaluators for that. And the same thing with GMOs. So but we don't have that, uh, Not certainly not in the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Krimsky, I want to thank you very much for speaking with me this afternoon, and I want to remind everyone that the GMO deception, what you need to know about the food, corporations, and government agencies putting our families and our environment at risk, is an excellent volume of papers 
to help us understand better what genetic engineering is doing to our crops and to our foods. So in closing, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Krimsky, for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again for your work, Dr. Krimsky. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. Thank you.